Well, comrades, um, the October Revolution uh, we describe as the greatest event in human history. For the first time, the oppressed masses uh, took power and they held on to it. But of course, the Russian Revolution was not just uh, an economic and social revolution. It also represented enormous artistic and creative revolution, which swept across all of Russia uh, and, of course, the world as well. As Leon Trotsky, the great Russian revolutionary, said, revolutions are the locomotives of history. And of course, art is closely connected to that process. You had individual genius like Eisenstein, Meyerhold, Stanislavski, Tatlin, El Lazitsky, Shostakovich, all of them revolutionizing their respective art forms. But every single one of the people I just mentioned and more, they weren't just artists. All of them supported the Russian Revolution. They used their art as a weapon for a transformation uh, of the world. And as well, the Russian Revolution gave millions of ordinary people, for the first time in their lives, access to culture and art, which was previously denied to them. Now, there was never any attempts by the Bolshevik party to subordinate art uh, to, to politics, uh, unlike what the bourgeois try and argue. In fact, they actively fought against the monopolization uh, of art. Now, in the early years of the Russian Revolution, there was a flowering of culture and art and experimentation that was unmatched anywhere in the world. But of course, all of this creativity was crushed by Stalinism um, in the end. Now, the only way really of understanding uh, art in the Russian Revolution is understanding historical materialism. That is the Marxist view of history. Now, what we say about history is that the development of the productive forces is ultimately the driving force of all of human civilization. The reproduction uh, and the production of the necessities of life, what we need to survive as a species. If we do not do this, we cannot even think about developing science, culture, arts, etc. As Aristotle said, man begins to think, uh, man begins to philosophize only once the needs of life uh, are met. Now, art at the end of the day does have a material basis in society, in economic relations. But I do stress this point. There is no direct relationship between art uh, and economics, and it's foolish to try and find this connection. Now, in the early days of art, as it first developed, there was a close link uh, to the means of production. Early songs and dances were linked to collective labor. Early cave paintings were linked to magic rituals to influence the, uh, the outcome of hunts. But once art develops, uh, it becomes less and less reliant on the productive forces. It takes on a logic uh, and meaning of its own. So today, some of the ideas that we have in this society uh, are made up of old prehistoric stock, which of course can be brought out and reawakened at any given point, and this affects art as well. But the point I'm trying to make is that art is made by humans at the end of the day, who are products of this society, and we can only ever have as material available for our art uh, the ideas that are given to us by human society uh, and history. The makers and consumers of art are living people with a psychology uh, and a thought process which is shaped and determined by this society. Art fundamentally is about communication. Um, its early origins are in labor and it was a social practice. But at the end of the day, in one way or another, art expresses real life or must be closely connected uh, to real life uh, and existence. Religion, politics, art, all of these things ultimately are part of the same process of social development, despite their individual characteristics, despite their complexity and their unique laws. Now again, I am not saying that economics directly explains art. It's nowhere near as simple as that. But at the same time, 
What we emphasize as Marxists is that art is not some mystical, God-given creation which is unknowable and stands apart from humans and uh, society. Uh, we can understand art in a rational and a materialist uh, way. Now, class struggle and revolution are huge factors in the shaping of consciousness in society. And to really to understand art, you need to understand uh, the process uh, of revolution. So. It's impossible, if you think about it, for art not to deal with revolution in one way or another. The greatest artists that humanity has ever seen have always dealt with the big questions of life and death, um, love and hate. And of course, there is a prejudice uh, that no good art can come from uh, revolution. And for this reason, there are many articles uh, and books attacking Russian revolutionary art uh, in particular uh, for that reason, which really reflects the attitude of the bourgeois class towards revolution itself more than their um, attitude towards um, art. Now, the reality is that revolution actually pushes art into new areas which, where it cannot go uh, under the sole domination uh, of, of the ruling class. Now, Plekhanov, who was a Russian Marxist, spoke about how the French Revolution gave art a new impulse. It was a matter for the whole people instead of just a minority. And of course, all of the critics of the Russian Revolution and the art that was produced in this period frequently forget the greatest of the British artists at that time supported the French Revolution. Um, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, William Wordsworth, all of these uh, were genuine revolutionaries uh, which supported the, the French Revolution and it reflected itself in their art. It made their art great. But of course in France, once the Thermidorian reaction uh, took place, you had a new era of politics emerging which reflected the bourgeois class and their interest and their inclinations in a very similar process happened uh, in Russia when the Stalinist counter-revolution took place, uh, which I'll talk about a bit later. So after the October Revolution in 1917, you had a galaxy of artistic talent rapidly emerging from within Russia. The working class, of course, led and carried out the revolution, but the best and the brightest of the intelligentsia, they fought with the masses, they aligned with the revolution, and this new spirit of revolutionary change imbued itself in their art. And that is a direct result uh, of the revolution. You had great poets like Mayakovsky and Alexander Bloch writing epic works conveying the spirit of the revolution. You had Meyerhold, an experimental theater director and actor, joining the Bolsheviks in 1918, throwing himself into the making of new revolutionary theater uh, for a new age. Now, Meyerhold's system of biomechanics, biomechanics uh, effectively introduced uh, physical training uh, into theater where it didn't really exist before. In many ways, uh, what Meyerhold was doing was a precursor to what Bertolt Brecht uh, would do uh, a couple of decades later. Now, Alexander Rodchenko, who was one of the founders of the constructivist uh, style, produced astounding photography and graphic design. It remains heavily influential uh, to this day. And of course, the great Vladimir Tatlin uh, designed his monument to the Third International, which was in effect uh, designed as a modern structure of glass and steel that would completely dwarf uh, the Eiffel Tower. Now, Tatlin's tower was never built uh, in the end, but I think what it really shows is the pioneering internationalist spirit of the times, the idea that through proletarian revolution, there is nothing that we cannot achieve. In this respect, I think uh, Vladimir Tatlin's work reminds me of Leonardo da Vinci and his dreams of flights. Da Vinci made a flying machine, of course. Um, it didn't fly in the end, but the point is that it showed uh, this spirit of change and, uh, and, and looking forward to the, to the future. And of course, we would achieve flight in the end, uh, many uh, hundreds of years later, based on developments of the productive forces and science. All of these artists had something to say 
uh, about society. They were revolutionary. Uh, and this allowed them actually to break with rules and conventions in their forms of art, what was deemed acceptable and what was not deemed acceptable. Now I can really only focus on a few names because there are far, far too many to, to go over in the time. I want to start by discussing Konstantin Stanislavski, um, who as Thomas mentioned, we have an article in our latest In Defense of Marxism uh, magazine. Now this individual revolutionized uh, 20th century theater and acting. In effect, what Stanislavski discovered were the scientific laws of how to act realistically. Uh, and this is where method acting, which a lot of us probably will have heard of, uh, emerged from uh, later on. Now, in my opinion, uh, Stanislavski is the single greatest theater uh, practitioner that has ever lived because of the sheer dominance of his teachings uh, and his style uh, on all of theater and all of film afterwards. There is not a single drama school in the world which does not teach Stanislavski's, uh, Stanislavski's methods in one way or another. What most people don't know about Stanislavski though, is that he was a firm supporter of the Russian Revolution and he makes this clear in his memoirs. There's an incredible account of when the Russian Revolution takes place. The Moscow Art Theater Company, uh, Stanislavski's company, they go to the Moscow Soviet and they say, how can we be of assistance? And the response they get from the Soviet is get to work, produce your plays, raise the cultural level uh, of the masses. Now Stanislavski always thought that theater was something that could ennoble the mind and the spirit. And the Bolsheviks understood this too. And they understood that raising the cultural level of the masses was essential to building a new society. Now Stanislavski, uh, when he founded the Moscow Art Theatre, intended it to be a people's theatre. Um, he wanted free tickets uh, for the working class, uh, but it was very difficult for him to do that under Tsarism. Um, and of course, this is something that he would really achieve uh, only once the Russian Revolution uh, took place. Um, and the theatres uh, were opened, in Stanislavski's words, exclusively to workers. Peasants, soldiers, janitors, clerks, and all of those people that were denied any experience of culture and theater um, un under Tsarism. Now, I'm going to quote uh, Stanislavski's memoirs, where there is an entire chapter uh, on the Russian Revolution. It's called uh, My Life in Art. I do recommend comrades uh, check this out uh, online. Now, I quote Stanislavski. The doors of our theater opened exclusively for the poor. Our performances were free to all those who received their tickets from factories and institutions where we sent them. We met face to face with spectators altogether new to us, many of whom, perhaps the majority, knew nothing not only of our theatre, but of any theatre. I remember one peasant, who was a good friend of mine, who came to once a year to Moscow with the express purpose of seeing our entire repertoire. Watching the performance, he would redden and pale from excitement and enthusiasm, and when the play ended, he could not return home to sleep. He walked alone for hours in the streets in order to clarify his impressions. Having seen our entire repertoire, he returned home for the ensuing year. From there, he would write numerous philosophical letters which helped him to digest and continue to live over the store of impressions which he had brought home with himself. I think that not such a few spectators appeared at our theater. We felt our presence, uh, we felt their presence and artistic duty towards them. Now comrades, this is what a revolution is all about. This is what communists are fighting for, this spiritual change in the masses. Now, it's important to emphasize that this was, these are not the words of a Bolshevik. This is not a communist speaking. He had no knowledge of Marxist theory whatsoever. He was just a sincere artist um, that found himself in the midst of the Russian Revolution. Stanislavski was actually invited to be part of the Bolshevik uh, government, in fact, but he, he politely declined uh, the invitation. He said that he dedicated himself to arts uh, and not to politics. 
But he always supported the Russian Revolution and he always maintained that the Bolsheviks gave him artistic freedom uh, in the early years. Now, I'll mention this uh, in detail a bit later. Now, with uh, Bolshevik support, uh, the Moscow Art Theater, uh, through their European and American tours, uh, they became world famous. They became world renowned and Stanislavski's method crossed uh, across the world and into America in particular, where method acting began to develop. Uh, and the Soviet Moscow Art Theater as well, something that the bourgeois don't like to talk about. They produced some brilliant work as well uh, in between 1925 and 1927. Now, at the same time as this, uh, Meyerhold, who founded his own theater in 1920, was experimenting using constructivist set design, circus-style effects, and he produced new Soviet plays by Nikolai Erdman, uh, Bloch, and uh, Mayakovsky. Another area which was uh, revolutionized uh, by the October Revolution was, of course, film. Uh, it was actually in Soviet Russia where the world's first film school was set up. This was the Moscow Film School in 1919. Now, Lev Kuleshov, who was one of the founders of this school, um, he made huge steps forward in what's known as montage theory by experimenting with stock footage. Kuleshov would arrange seemingly unrelated scenes to each other, uh, which would generate a certain dramatic effect when combined. Now, this was a true revolution uh, in filmmaking. And of course, as well, it emerged as a result of the civil war in Russia, the war against the, the white armies, the life or death struggle for the revolution. Now, in this struggle, uh, the Red Army waged war uh, with art. They produced agitprot trains, which I've got um, on the screen um, beside me. They were equipped with Marxist literature, with gramophones, with cinema rooms and brightly painted exteriors to raise morale of the soldiers, but also to bring art to the peasantry who knew nothing of this uh, prior. You had a group of cameramen called Kinox who had risked their lives to film scenes directly from the battlefield. Uh, and a lot of this footage was used by Kuleshov and others to develop the montage uh, technique. Now the great uh, Ziga Vertov uh, made enormous contributions to cinema and to montage theory. He produced a film called Anniversary of the Revolution, which was the first documentary film ever made. But his real masterpiece came in 1929 where he produced Man with a Movie Camera. Now, this was a really revolutionary film which put the cameraman uh, as the main protagonist. He told the story of a city without a conventional narrative. Vertov removed false scenarios. He removed acting and he showed life as it really was through his work. But the leading lights of Soviet, uh, Soviet film sorry, uh, was undoubtedly Sergei Eisenstein, who many consider uh, to be the greatest film director that ever lived. Now, again, Eisenstein was a committed revolutionary. He left school uh, to join the Red Army and to fight in civil war to defend the revolution. He began his artistic work uh, in the theater within the Proletkult organization uh, and as a designer for Meyerhold uh, before moving into filmmaking. Now, just briefly, Proletkult was a mass organization that aimed to create what it called proletarian culture at the expense of what it described as bourgeois culture, uh, which was basically all of the culture of the past they lumped together. Now, this is an incorrect idea. It's a mistaken one, which I'll explain a bit later. But going back to Eisenstein, in his first film, uh, Strike, he made use of actors that were trained in the Mayhold uh, Theater. Uh, if you take a look at the, the actors that play the workers uh, in Strike, they're all quite physically fit. Uh, they're very nimble, whereas the capitalists are basically quite, you know, fat and, uh, uh, and lazy. There's incredible movement uh, that takes place in Strike. I, I do encourage you to watch the film and pay attention to the way the actors express themselves uh, physically, because none of this was happening really uh, elsewhere in, in film. 
Battleship Potemkin remains one of the greatest films ever made. The Odessa step sequence uh, make huge, um, huge uh, use of, of the montage theory. Now, Eisenstein, uh, to escape the Stalinist counter-revolution, actually traveled uh, to the capitalist uh, West. Um, but it is a damning indictment of the so-called civilized and cultured West that Eisenstein, whilst he was here, was effectively prevented from making a single feature-length film due to the fact he was a communist and he was reviled for that, uh, despite public support by people like Charlie, Chap uh, Charlie Chaplin and, and Upton Sinclair. Now, Major Pease, who was the uh, president of the Hollywood Technical Directors Institute, like a true philistine, uh, launched a public anti-communist campaign uh, against Eisenstein, one of the greatest directors even at that point uh, that ever lived. Now, when Eisenstein returned to Russia, the same pressure was put on his creativity by Stalinism, like many others. But although like others, uh, like the great uh, Shostakovich, the composer, he actually managed to conceal criticisms of Stalinism in his later works like uh, Ivan uh, the Terrible. Now, in my opinion, uh, one of the more perhaps underappreciated artists of the Russian Revolution is the great Elizitsky, uh, who was a photographer, a designer, uh, a typographer, and an architect. Now, Elizitsky was Jewish, uh, and like many other Jews, he was prevented uh, by, uh, from studying at St. Petersburg Art Academy because of official czarist anti-Semitism. So he traveled to Europe to study architecture, fine arts, and sketching. Uh, later, he returned to Russia just, bef uh, ju just before the revolution, uh, and his interest lay in Jewish art and, and Jewish culture, which of course was suppressed um, uh, under the Tsar. But once the Russian Revolution takes place, Elizitsky identifies with it completely. He becomes a communist uh, in a very short space of time because he correctly understood the Russian Revolution as representing the liberation of the Jews from brutal czarist uh, anti-Semitism. Now, in 1919, he taught uh, graphic arts um, printing and architecture at the New People's Art School. Uh, and once the, uh, the artist Kazimir Malievich joined the school, Elizitsky begins to break away from Jewish art. In the same period, Elizitsky produces this work, the work he is perhaps most known for. It's the Civil War propaganda poster, uh, Beat the Whites with the Red Wedge. Now, really, this is a magnificent image. Uh, it was unlike anything that was produced prior. If you look at it, it's incredibly abstract, it's highly abstract, and yet the meaning somehow is crystal clear. It's not spiritual, it's not quasi-religious like other suprematist works. It clearly and simply expresses the message of the Red Army, the Bolsheviks, the forces of revolution, smashing the White Armies of reaction. The form of the Red Wedge is sharp. Um, it penetrates into the inert white circle. The smaller red wedges move into the frame. They express motion. They shatter the smaller white rectangles. Now, this is a brilliant expression of a revolution, of the struggle to build a new society. And again, this is a big step away from Malievich's non-objective suprematist uh, style. Now, the Red Wedge uh, was a different form of art as well. It was a mass propaganda poster, as opposed to Malievich's uh, paintings. It moved into the realm of typography, graphic design, and postering. And again, this is explicitly a propaganda poster. And yet, the fact it is propaganda doesn't diminish the artistic quality. I would say that the political and the artistic attentions actually align in a work like this to make it even greater. The propaganda is of a mass character. It's of revolutionary change. It's the forces of revolution against reaction. In what are two two-dimensional shapes uh, in two colors, three colors if you count black, 
Elisitsky distills the essence of a revolution in this magnificent image. Uh, and here, he's moving towards constructivism, a style of art which um, is the idea of art having a social purpose, the idea of art literally helping to construct a brand new society. Now, the constructivists, uh, they moved away uh, from artists uh, in the old sense. They considered themselves more like engineers for a new society rather than bourgeois individuals who produced only for themselves and their own glory. In fact, when Malievich and Elizitsky worked together in their group, they would collectively sign their works with the black square, uh, which is one of Malievich's uh, motifs. They would share responsibility rather than signing their names as individuals. Now, just briefly on the question of architecture and design, the architects of this period, they aimed to express the idea of a revolutionary society, a forward-looking society. You, of course, had Tatlin's Tower, which I mentioned. You had projects by the Vesnin brothers. Konstantin Melnikov uh, designed several workers' clubs. Uh, and Elizitsky uh, even tried to design what was basically a socialist alternative uh, to American skyscrapers called cloud irons, which we've got uh, uh, pictured up there. They had a horizontal rectangular shape uh, on top of an uh, elevated platform. Now, Rodchenko also designed uh, a workers' club in 1925, which was displayed at the Paris uh, Decorative Arts Fair. Now, this club is full of movable, uh, adjustable furniture. It's built mainly of wood in simple uh, planes, geometric forms, but it's also functional. You can move the tables. There's a film screen in there, which actually moves to create a lectern for a speaker. The idea is that the worker goes to the club, they read, they develop their minds, but also they alter their environment through this architecture. They construct their own world. Now, there were other submissions uh, to the Paris Expo that year that could not be more different because innovation for the capitalists was, for the most part, uh, dealing with luxury, uh, decadence, uh, crystal chandeliers, uh, upholstered chairs in the Art Deco style, uh, that, that sort of thing. Now, uh, Melnikov uh, designed the Soviet pavilion itself for the 1925 Paris Expo, and it looks like a building from the future at that point, really. You have two glazed volumes connected with a diagonal staircase. Um, you have large beams uh, crossing over to connect both sides of the structure. It's angular, it's sleek, it looks like as if it's moving into the future. There's lots of glass panels so you can see exactly what's inside it. There's very little monumentality, there's very little ornamentation. Uh, in other words, this is a remarkably modern building. Now, of course, modern architecture was represented at the Paris Expo by others. In fact, Le Corbusier, who many consider to be really the founder, uh, the forefather of modern architecture, was there, and he designed a, a pavilion himself for the Expo. But he declared publicly that, in his opinion, the Soviet pavilion was the only one worth seeing, which I think says a lot, really, about the um, uh, design. Now, El Lizitsky also uh, designed an apartments uh, unit in 1927. Uh, again, it's completely revolutionary uh, in its design and function. You can see how modern it looks uh, compared to the, uh, the living spaces of the past. Now, you'll notice that the apartment actually has no kitchen there because, of course, residents are encouraged to eat at the communal canteen thus liberating them uh, from their domestic work. Now, this apartment was designed for the Narkomfen building, uh, which is there pictured on, uh, on the right, still standing. Now, a lot of these designers, uh, especially the, uh, the constructivist ones, uh, a lot of them would go on to influence uh, places like the Bauhaus in Germany uh, and a lot of modern architecture uh, and design that followed. Now, what I've described to you is very... Uh, it's a very small snapshot uh, of the great genius that emerged from the Russian Revolution. But really, perhaps the greatest legacy 
uh, of the revolution is that it gave the masses for the first time, almost overnight, access to art and culture which they never had before. And this explosion uh, in art is really unprecedented uh, in the history of the world. And it came directly as a result of the revolution where the masses move to change society, but in doing so, they express their desire for a genuine and humane uh, existence. Now, theater was perhaps the greatest expression of this. The entire country was swept by an, academic, an epidemic sorry, of theater uh, in the countryside. Even the peasants, uh, who were illiterate, wrote uh, and, and performed plays collectively. And when they couldn't do that, they performed traditional Russian folk songs. You had hundreds of theater groups springing up all across Russia, and there was practically uh, no factory in the country without its dramatic circle. At the time of the Civil War, there were around 3,000 professional troops uh, alone. In 1920, the Red Army and the fleet had over 1,800 uh, theater clubs. In fact, you read uh, Literature and Revolution by Trotsky. He mentions very briefly in a sentence that it wasn't uncommon for Red Army battalions to literally carry around props and bits of sets that were used in theater productions. Now, the Moscow Art uh, Theater gave its tickets uh, for free to workers, as I mentioned. But the Bolshoi Ballet also opened its doors to the masses for the first time. You had other mass spectacles, uh, including the special dramas, which were usually presented uh, on public holidays. You had themes around the 1848 revolutions, 1917, the Paris Commune or Spartacus's slave uprising. Now, one of the most famous of these uh, was the Stormy of the Winter Palace, which was performed in front of the Winter Palace itself in November 1920, with over 8,000 participants and an orchestra of at least 500 people, including many people that actually participated in the real storming. Now, um, this image is often presented as an image of the Russian Revolution itself. It's actually an image of the stage uh, performance uh, a few years later, but it is a great image. The actual Stormy of the Winter Palace was more like a police operation, as comrades uh, might be aware. Very little bloodshed, very little uh, disorder. Now, all of this was part of this explosion of street art, of mass demonstrations, speeches, and performances. Now, uh, Mikhail Gurman, who was a Soviet writer, said, of the time, art led a feverish existence. Uh, in April 1919, the World of Art uh, group staged an enormous exhibition in the Winter Palace. 3,000 works uh, were displayed. At the end of autumn 1917, uh, they were said, Citizens, our former masters have left a huge legacy behind us. Now it belongs to all of the people. Now, the Stalinist counter-revolution uh, decimated uh, all of this, uh, as well as, of course, carrying out a revolution in politics and uh, in society. Art needs freedom in order to flourish, and Stalinism really did crush uh, that freedom. But despite Stalinism, and I do say this carefully, there were still concrete gains made as a result of the revolution in literacy, numeracy, in filmmaking, photography, and poetry, amongst the other arts. You had musicians like Gilles and Richter drawing large audiences from across the Soviet Union. You had tens of thousands of people going to stadiums in Moscow for poetry readings, something which is unthinkable under the Tsar previously. In the 1960s, poetry was wildly popular amongst the Soviet youth. We have some images of poetry readings here. They're not rock concerts. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're um, poetry readings, which is um, really incredible. Now, all of these gains took place in spite of the bureaucracy. Uh, and really, it was indirectly as a result of the sort of progressive developments uh, of the planned economy, which helped to explain the great advancements in other areas of Soviet society. Of course, the Soviet Union dominated in science and in sports, uh, two, other, two other areas which are closely connected uh, to art, I would say. Now, moving on to the Bolshevik position uh, on art itself, there is a lie, a complete slander, which is told about the Bolsheviks that they didn't 
um, support art, that they didn't care for art, that Lenin only considered art to be uh, propaganda, that the Bolsheviks clamped down on art in the same way as the Tsars and later Stalin did. And all of this is complete nonsense. Anyone who takes even a cursory look at the life and the writings of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky, will see a deep passion for, an understanding of art and literature, really, in, in particular. Lenin loved the short stories of Anton Chekhov, works like Ward Number 26 in particular, uh, and he spoke highly of the Moscow Art Theatre, which he'd been visiting from 1902 in letters to his mother. Lenin's most famous book, What is to be Done, is named after a Chernyshevsky novel. How can you say this man wasn't interested uh, in art? And of course, Leon Trotsky, wrote volumes and volumes in art and revolution and culture, as comrades are aware of. But putting aside the personal preferences of the leaders of the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik government position to art was of support. It was of tolerance of creativity, again, because they understood the need to raise the cultural level of Russia. Now, it's true that art was used as propaganda uh, by the Bolsheviks. But again, what kind of propaganda is this? It was propaganda against the imperialist, against the white armies, those who would seek to destroy the first worker state and restore capitalism and restore czarism and its backwardness. It's mass revolutionary propaganda. It's art being used as a weapon of attack and defense, as Pablo Picasso, another communist, uh, would put it, in a life or death struggle for the Russian and by extension world revolution. It's also complete nonsense to suggest that only propaganda was produced and supported by the Bolsheviks as art. Now Trotsky said, uh, and he says many quotes on art, and in 1938 he said, a truly revolutionary party is neither able nor willing to take upon itself the task of leading, much less of commanding art. And art can become an ally of revolution only so far as it remains faithful to itself. Now, initially, what the Bolsheviks did is they organized and subsidized theatrical companies on a permanent basis. They set up schools in theater craft. They strove to make the arts as widely accessible uh, as possible. There were big art collections uh, that were nationalized. Uh, the collections of Sergei Shushkin and Ivan Mozarov were nationalized for the masses uh, to enjoy. The former imperial theaters, like the Alexandrinsky, uh, were nationalized. And one of the first measures uh, of the theaters in particular that the Bolsheviks insisted on was a classical repertoire. Uh, they insisted to do Pushkin uh, and Shakespeare and the other classics. Now, in the years that followed 1917, um, the state drama theater produced classics like The Marriage of Figaro, Schiller's Love and Intrigue, uh, and the MAT also produced uh, Lord Byron's Cane. Now, it is completely laughable to suggest that productions of Byron and Schiller constitute communist propaganda. And again, Stanislavski was not a Bolshevik. He was not a communist. But this is what he said in 1928. In those days, the government came to our help, and thanks to it, our theater was able to weather the storm. But our government earned my deepest gratitude for something else quite different. Our government did not force us to dye ourselves red and pretend to be something we were not. Now, one of the central debates that came in the Russian theater following 1917 is whether we should stage classics or pre uh, promote the new avant-garde theater. Now, Meyerhold, who I mentioned, uh, was opposed to traditional Russian theater. He wanted to replace literature, psychology, and realism with cubism, futurism, and suprematism. Now, Prolotkult made um, similar arguments. Uh, but the commissariat of the Enlightenment, who were in charge for culture and education in Russia, they opposed this because they didn't want any one group monopolizing art. Now, if there's any more doubts about where the Bolsheviks stood on this question, Prolotkult, uh, who I mentioned, were heavily criticized by the Bolshevik government for their one-sided um, interpretation of art and their attempts at monopolizing it. 
Now, for a long time, Prolet Cult was the only artistic organization that collaborated with the Bolshevik government, basically. Um, but that didn't stop the Bolsheviks from curtailing them when they went too far, basically, when they threatened to destroy the heritage of Russia. Now, Prolet Cult, after it was formed in 1917, was basically a mass organization. They were an artistic group, but they had a lot of petty bourgeois intellectuals uh, that were basically opposed to the Soviet government. In fact, its leader was Bogdanov, who was a former Bolshevik that Lenin polemicized against uh, in 1908. But even in spite of these facts, the Bolsheviks didn't initially suppress Prolet Cult. They gave it funding. They tried to give it creative functions and leave the educational functions uh, to the rest of the government. But instead, Prolet Cult argued that not only should all bourgeois art be destroyed, but that their organization should have a complete monopoly on what artists produced. And of course, this was intolerable. And it was the reason for the Bolsheviks basically folding Prolet Cult in 1920 and incorporating it into the government. The problem was never the art itself that they made. Um, it was their attempt to monopolize uh, and decide what was right and what was wrong. Now, as Trotsky says, is it necessary to break with the old in order to produce new art, to advance it? Of course it is. But the point is that the Russian workers at that time did not know anything of the old art. So they still had yet to absorb the classical literature and break with it on their own terms. And really, Prolet Cult spoke about the masses uh, and the working classes, but they were basically just intellectuals masquerading as proletarians and calling themselves uh, radicals. The term proletarian culture as well doesn't really make sense. Because the socialist revolution is about laying the foundations for classless communist society. We don't want there to be a proletariat. We want there to be no classes. And in this stage, there will be no proletarian art, but there will be truly human art, which will be uncorrupted by class uh, society. And groups like Prolet Cult should have considered themselves to be helping to raise the level of the Russian masses rather than create art out of nothing, which is what Lenin and, and Krupskaya and Trotsky and others tried to argue for them to do. Now, the golden age of Russian revolutionary art uh, didn't last long because the degeneration of the Russian revolution resulted in, in a counter-revolution in every sphere of art, uh, every sphere of life, including art, as, as you can see from this, these charming uh, socialist realist uh, paintings. The avant-garde and the experimental was suppressed uh, in favor of this, socialist realism, which became the official art form in 1932. Uh, victims included Shostakovich, Eisenstein, Rodchenko. All of them were silenced or put into an artistic straitjacket. Mayakovsky, the great poet, committed suicide, certainly as a protest against Stalinism. Now, Mayerhold was eventually hounded off the stage by the authorities. Uh, his theater was liquidated, and eventually he was arrested, tortured brutally, uh, and shot dead after being accused of being a Trotskyist. Uh, and there were many more victims, which I don't have time to mention. And yet, even despite this, there were faint glimmers of the legacy left behind by 1917, because even Stalin couldn't undo the great enlightenment of millions of people. By the 1950s, the Soviet Union had nearly 100% literacy, which was remarkable considering they were a peasant country only a few decades earlier. Anecdotally, uh, the Soviet Union was one of the most well-read countries in the world. There was a mass culture of reading, a literature and poetry. Before 1917, there were two ballet companies in Russia, the Bolshoi and the Mariinsky. Um, French ballerinas were imported into the country and Russian talent was neglected. But by the 1970s, there were ballet schools in most of the large Russian cities and including in Central Asia as well, which knew nothing of classical ballet prior to the revolution. These were the cultural gains of the revolution which Stalin couldn't destroy. And of course as well, there was great art produced in the Soviet Union in the decades that followed, long after 1917. The great films of Andrei Tarkovsky and Klimov come to mind. In fact, George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, said famously, in his opinion, the Soviet filmmakers of the 70s had more freedom than he did because he was constrained by money-making and commercialism. 
But of course, a lot of these films, a lot of this art, Tarkovsky, Klimov and others, it came decades after Stalin was, has died, basically. It was a different stage of the Soviet bureaucracy when they tried to loosen the grip on, uh, on society. Now, just to conclude, because I've, I've run out of time, the bourgeois have always tried to separate the art that was produced in 1917 from the revolution, but that's impossible. The art produced was not sullied by its connection to revolution. It was emboldened because it expressed the idea of fighting for a new and better world. Now imagine what we can achieve if the masses under capitalism today are freed from the daily humiliation and slavery of this society, when they begin to think and feel as genuine human beings. And this is what being a communist is all about. This is what we're fighting for. Art is essential uh, to humanity. And the very origins of art lie in collective labor and in everyday life. And so in this way, by fighting for revolution to change society, we will begin the process of stripping art of its mystical halo, reconnect it to ordinary people and ordinary life. Now I'll end with a quote from Stanislavski, which he mentioned in 1929 to his theater company. There will come a time, and very soon, when a great play, a work of genius will be written. It will, of course, be revolutionary. No great work can be anything else. But this will not be a revolutionary play in the sense that one will parade around with red flags. The revolution will come from something inside. We shall see on the stage the metamorphosis of the soul of the world, the inner struggle with a worn out past, with a new, not yet understood or realized present. This will be a struggle for equality, freedom, a new life and a spiritual culture. Now comrades, it is a task of revolutionaries and all thinking and feeling people to bring about this revolution in art by completing the revolution in society because it's the only thing that can set art and creativity free from the shackles of capitalism uh, and class society.